This morning's reading is from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord. Before we begin the message, I just want to take a moment to express gratitude to the Lord for the remarkable life of Billy Graham. Um, what, a, what a remarkable person and how God used this man. And I think he was remarkable, not just because of his preaching gift, perhaps even more so because of the example that he set for Christian leaders. Um, he had relationships with 12 sitting U.S. presidents, which I don't know that that will ever be done again. Quite a remarkable thing. If you've never read his autobiography, Just As I Am, he has chapters in there about his relationship with uh, many of those presidents. So I uh, highly, highly recommend it. At least one person on our church staff came to know the Lord as a 12-year-old at a Billy Graham crusade. And I imagine a number of others in this room did too. So we thank the Lord for his life and his example. Today we continue our series that we're titling, We Are, The Values That Define Us. And you may wonder why we would be doing a series of messages on this subject of biblical values. Well, just a little background may help. And if you got a bulletin at the door, you might want to open it and look at the middle panel for a moment in purple-like colored ink, uh, the section entitled Vision Frame. Some months ago, going back into the summer, the elders on our church session began meeting, praying, seeking the Lord about how we as a church could have the greatest possible impact for God's kingdom, for his honor in the years to come. We began asking, how can we best glorify God and make disciples? And we believe that is expressed in the brief mission statement you see on the right, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. In other words, disciple-making, discipleship in our church that leads to outreach outside of the church. We also thought it was important to clarify our discipleship pathway, the process by which people can grow spiritually when they come into our church. And further, we began seeking to clarify those foundational values that we hope will define us. We hope they do now, but we hope they will increasingly in the future. 
So in past weeks, we've looked at the ones you see on the screen. Bible-centered, prayer-fueled, spirit-led, and today we're talking about what it means to be generous, generous-hearted as a church and also as individuals who are part of the church. We want to be a church that exists not as a mere container of God's blessing, but a channel of his blessing into the community and the world beyond. As we look at this subject of generosity this morning, we're going to be looking at scripture. Uh, Bridget read a portion of it a moment ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's part of a longer teaching found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 on the subject of giving. The background is this. The Apostle Paul was preparing the church at Corinth to receive an offering for Christians in need in another area. So he's writing them in advance to prepare for their offering. This is, I believe, the longest single block of teaching in the New Testament on the subject of giving. And while it is a monetary offering that's being collected, the word money doesn't appear in these two chapters. There are, however, other words that appear several times, and I'd like to consider those just for a moment because they give you a bit of the, the, the feel and flavor for this whole idea of generosity. One of the key words that shows up a lot in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the word grace. And you see it on the screen. The Apostle Paul, he begins by talking about how the Macedonian church was so generous in their giving. And he says, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's talking about their giving and offering. He calls it the grace of God having been shown through them. And then he uses this phrase, act of grace, three times in this one chapter. It says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. He's talking about receiving an offering. And three times in this chapter, he calls it an act of grace. In verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And then he relates this grace to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who left heaven to come to earth. The, grace of, uh, the word grace appears even more times. That's just a little sampling. Another word that appears in these chapters and relates to giving is the word ministry or service. Now, this is particularly important. I've heard people say sometimes, you know, I can't do much for God's kingdom. I can't do much for the church. I can't do much in ministry. All I can do is give. Giving is a beautiful act of service. God considers it ministry. The Apostle Paul writes, now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's talking about receiving an offering. He says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The ministry of this service. And again, he's talking about their material giving. And then further, he writes, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. And again, he's talking about their giving. Key words then, the word grace, the word ministry or service. A third key word that's found is the word generosity. Apostle Paul's writing 
the verse you see at the top of the screen about the generosity of the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church had already apparently participated in this offering for these poor Christians elsewhere, but they did so out of their own extreme poverty. And he writes in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You mean people who are poor can be generous? Yes. Because God does not measure generosity by the size of the gift, but the heart and tent lying behind it. Who do you think was the most generous person in the whole Bible? You ever thought about that? I was thinking about it this week. Might, we might say King David in the Old Testament because he gave what would be uh, countless millions of dollars for the building of the temple, but David was very rich. We might think it was the woman who took a very expensive vial of perfume and poured it out on Jesus' feet because it was so valuable. But I'd say the most generous person in the pages of the Bible is likely the woman who's described in only three words, a poor widow. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, Jesus was watching people put money into the temple treasury. And the Bible says many who are rich put in large amounts. And then a poor widow put in a coin, copper coin. Uh, quadrants is the, the word for this Roman coin, and it's a penny. It's equivalent to one sixty-fourth of a day's wages for a laborer in the field. So you take what a person would earn working in the, in the fields and take one sixty-fourth of that. It's translated in most of our Bibles as a penny. Jesus commended her as having giving, given more than all the rich people putting in a, in a whole bunch. Because he, he looked at the generosity, what that one coin meant to her. We see further in this chapter, the Apostle Paul using this word generous. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous. God will provide for you so you can be generous, he says. And then in chapter 9 and verse 13, we see the word generosity used again in relation to this giving, this contribution. So, I'd like to look at just a section of these two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, with this in the background, these key words, grace and ministry and generosity, and consider a moment what it means to be generous. Because it is our vision as a church to, to be generous increasingly over the years in our giving to missions and ministry and the poor and those outside of our church. But we're gener we want to be generous not just with money, with our time, with our service, with our talents, with our energies and influence and the other resources that God gives to us. What does this chapter teach us about generosity? And in this context, in this chapter, it is talking, I think, about monetary uh, giving. First, Generosity should proceed from a decision of the heart, not as a response to human persuasion. Have you ever been in a setting, a Christian meeting somewhere, 
where someone got up to speak, an evangelist or someone, and then someone got up to take an offering, and, and they, they went on 20 minutes about the offering with a really emotional appeal and wanted you to make an on-the-spot, hasty decision for a, for a large commitment. I get turned off by that. I've seen it on television a lot. I feel like people are manipulating. Call now or miss your blessing. Apostle Paul says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't give under pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. He is talking about planned, purposeful, prayed over giving. He's writing them in advance to prepare for their giving. He's not going to stand up and pound on them for some kind of an emotional spur of the moment decision. Not under compulsion. Generosity should proceed from a decision of the heart. Secondly, it's God who provides the resources that enable us to be generous. And that's a key point in the passage we're looking at. In verse 11 we read, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poorest. Righteousness endures forever. Now that statement is, is in quotation marks because it's a quote from the Old Testament from the book of Psalms 112. It's talking about the person who uh, fears the Lord and delights in his commandments and how God will provide for this person to enable them to be generous. And then Paul goes on to write, he who supplies seed to the sower, and he's talking about God here, God supplies seed to the one who sows and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's talking about our, our giving, our material giving, uh, using this agricultural uh, illustration. It's like uh, analogy. It's like seed for sowing. And God will not only provide the seed, but increase the harvest of your righteousness. Giving can result in a harvest, uh, not only materially, but of righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, someone may say, is this teaching give in order to get? No. It's teaching give in order to honor God and invest in his kingdom, but it's teaching us to give with trust in God as our source, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food. God is the provider of all that we have or can have to give. And it leads us to consider I think the, the primary biblical concept regarding our handling of money, it's a concept, it's the idea of stewardship. Stewardship, I think, could be defined in three truths. And if you follow on the back of your bulletin, you'll see the little fill in the blanks for this point and other uh, points about generosity as well. I think stewardship could be defined with three key truths that are taught throughout the scripture. Number one, God owns everything. It's all God's. The next breath that you and I take is a gift from God. We may feel like we can control everything and own everything, but it is all ultimately provided by His hand. God owns everything. Secondly, I am a temporary manager of what He's entrusted to me. 
temporary because when this life ends, we will take nothing with us. The Bible says that. We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we can take nothing out. The moment that a wealthy man like Bill Gates dies, the moment he dies, financially, he's completely equal with a homeless individual who dies on the same day, yet has nothing materially. At the moment of death, financially, they're the very same place. Brought nothing into the world, take nothing out. So we're temporary managers because we only have this window of opportunity in this life to manage these resources that God's entrusted to us. Now, the word manager is related to the word steward. In the New Testament, the word steward uh, represented a household manager, not an owner. The owner entrusts the household to the steward. The steward runs the house, manages the house, and is accountable to the owner. But the steward doesn't own anything, just manages it all. We see this particularly in the parables of Jesus, like his parable of the talent. The, the owner gives different differing talents to different uh, stewards who are to be faithful with them. And then afterwards, there is an accounting. And in the principle of stewardship, there's an accounting to God for our handling of his resources. So God owns everything. We're temporary managers of what he has entrusted to us, whether it's little, whether it's much. But ultimately, we will give an account to God for our stewardship. Now, a third thing we do see about generosity in this ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians it's a key point. It's simple, though, and the, the chapters, two chapters end on a, with a short verse teaching us that generosity with our wealth is a response to God's inexpressible gift to us. God's inexpressible gift refers to the gift of Jesus Christ for our salvation. God the Son, leaving heaven, coming to earth, allowing himself to be crucified, where he bears the judgment for our sins himself, so that through our faith in him, we are forgiven and considered righteous by God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. As the Apostle Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our generosity should always be a response to God. God goes first. He loves us first. Our giving is a response to his incredible incredible generosity in giving his son. So I think we could define generosity this way, as grace-motivated ministry flowing from gratitude to God and vision for his kingdom. Grace-motivated ministry, because giving is ministry. And it flows from our gratitude to God. It's not under compulsion or guilt flows from our gratitude to God who first gave to us and it, and it includes vision for his kingdom. 
Because God lets us participate in the work of His kingdom through our giving, through our generosity. The highest purpose for the giving of our wealth is the worship of God Himself. This was seen in the Old Testament when God taught His people the value of giving their first fruits. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. People were called to worship God by bringing the first fruits of their crops or their flocks to the Lord as an act of worship. This is related to the Old Testament principle and teaching about the tithe. The word tithe simply means a tenth. When people talk about tithing, they're talking about giving a tenth of their income. And it's a form of worship to the Lord. In the Old Testament, in books like Leviticus chapter 27, the Israelites were taught tithing as a law. A tithe of everything was uh, to be presented in worship to God. Christians often wonder, is tithing a law for us today? I would say no. It's not a law for us. There's no law that we're called to keep in order to make ourselves acceptable to God except for one. The one the Apostle Paul calls in the book of Romans the law of faith. Placing our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, this brings us into a relationship of security with God. So while it's not a law we're called to keep for righteousness, I do believe it's a principle. It's the first fruits principle, and it's a principle that honors and glorifies God in, in worship. I view tithing, I like the way author Randy Alcorn puts it in his excellent little book, The Treasure Principle. He says we should consider the tithe the floor, but not the ceiling. A starting place. A starting place for, for faithful stewardship. Now, I'm mindful that the, the, the concept of tithe to some people would come as a great shock. And uh, some might think, I've never heard of that. I've never known what that is. I cannot imagine giving the Lord that much of my money. Others would say, financially, we're at a place that could never happen. I want you to know this about our church. We are not a legalistic church. Uh, I remember a, a woman coming to me who had lost her husband and um, they didn't have a lot, but he had a life insurance policy and um, the, the policy had paid. And this was a woman who I suspect had been brought up in a church or had been part of a church where there was this kind of a legalistic thing. If you don't, you know, you tithe or, you, you know, you're cheating God, you're going to be cursed or something like this. And she said, you know, I got the life insurance policy. I think I can make it on that if I don't tithe. Is that okay? And I said, of course it's okay. You be at peace. You use all of that for your needs. God will take care of you and provide what you need. Now somebody, maybe some of you here, would take me to task for that and say, you really did that woman a disservice. Because the Bible says when you bring your whole tithe into the storehouse, the Lord opens the windows of heaven and pours out his blessing 
And the best thing you could have done is told her to step out of faith and do that. And I would say to someone who says that, according to your faith, be it unto you. You cannot impose your, your, your mature knowledge about giving and the way you've seen God. You can't always impose that on another person. And I would say to you, if you're not accustomed to giving, and yet you, you, you believe God is calling you toward that, maybe start by giving God 1%. Work toward what you think God wants you to give. Now, to those of us for whom things are going well in life, we, we have an abundance. God is blessing us. I would say don't see tithing as some kind of a limit on your giving. As Randy Alcorn says, see it as the floor, not the ceiling, and a starting place for faithful stewardship. I think sometimes we've got to ask ourselves, why is God blessing me so much in life? I think of uh, the person who starts out with their first job and um, maybe gets out of college and is making, say, $50,000. And uh, I did not make anywhere near that when I first got out of college. I was a sales rep on commission, but I can remember getting my first check and thinking, this is incredible, because my, my rent in those days, I lived in the basement of a, a house in Ardmore, and it was $175 a month, and included all the utilities. It was a pretty good deal, so I felt like whenever I got a check, I just had, had tons of money. But say this person gets out, a faithful Christian wants to tithe, making $50,000, and they do tithe, and they're living on $45,000. And over the years, this person works hard. They take advantage of their opportunities. They're smart. They do well. God blesses them. And 15 years later, they are making $500,000 and continuing to tithe. The question I think this person should be asking as a faithful Christian is this. Has God blessed me over these 15 years so that I can go from a $45,000 lifestyle, a $45,000 lifestyle to a $450,000 lifestyle? Or God, does God have something else in mind? Is God calling me to increase my generosity? What studies consistently show in the United States of America, at least those that I've read, is that few American Christians actually do tithe the percentage of giving hovers somewhere around 3% studies I've read. What's remarkable, though, is that as income goes up, the percentage of giving often goes down. So that those who have less, those who are poorer, seem to give more as a percentage. Well, I've taken a long time on the concept of the tie, but I want to I say this. It's not a law. It is not a law. But I do believe the first fruits principle is of value for us as a goal or a starting place for faithful giving. The key is that our giving is to be seen as worship of God. Secondly, our use of wealth reveals the devotion of our hearts. Jesus said some very, very sobering things about money and the dangerous control it can have over the human heart. In Luke chapter 12, he said, take heed and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
Money can steal the devotion of a human heart very, very easily. That's why the Apostle Paul said it's the love of money that is at the root of all kinds of evil. Money can be a very, very good servant for the work of the kingdom, but it's a very, very poor master. can steal the devotion of the heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. One of the things that can break the back of the idol of greed is giving. Our use of wealth reveals the devotion of our hearts. And then finally, wealth can blind us or bind us to God's eternal kingdom. By that I mean money can blind us to eternal realities when we put all of our hope in it, all of our trust in it, all of our consumption is for ourselves and for this life only. Or we can see it as a way of doing what Jesus called laying up treasure in heaven by investing in the kingdom so that God gives eternal reward. And that really is, I think, the teaching of Jesus about the handling of wealth. The Apostle Paul in the verses on the screen was writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. In the New Testament churches, there were people across the spectrum financially. Lots of uh, churches had a high percentage of slaves and some wealthy people in the churches. And so he writes to Timothy in how to lead the church, how to teach the people. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. We have to be careful when we have abundance, we don't think better of ourselves than others who have less. We also have to be careful not to put our trust in that, our confidence in that. But remember that it's God who's provided it all. They're to do good. They're to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. What does he mean by that, storing up treasure? He's talking about, I think, what Jesus was talking about when he said, lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. Investing in the kingdom of God is like storing up treasure in heaven. Now, as we draw to a close, I just want to raise the question for a moment, how can we grow in our generosity as a church and as individuals? Because it's one of our values as a church to be a generous church. With our money, with our resources, God has blessed us as a church. We live in a fairly affluent part of Forsyth County, and we have a responsibility to those who have less, to the poor, to the unreached in our community and around the world. How can we grow in generosity as a church or as individuals? Number one, embrace the biblical concept of stewardship. And again, the... the, the definition that, that we're using is that God owns everything. We're temporary managers of what he's entrusted to us. We'll give an account to God for our stewardship. Embrace the biblical concept of stewardship. Secondly, see your giving is worship of God. We have a much higher percentage of people today than even a year ago that give online and uh, certainly convenient and uh, others still give by check. How, how will you give, our church or elsewhere, when you give, think of it as an act of worship. It's an act of worship of God. 
Thirdly, see your giving as an investment. It's an investment in God's kingdom. Remember one of the recurring words of this chapter was the word ministry. Ministry. Service. Giving is investing. It's participating in the work of the kingdom of God. We can't all be in uh, North India or Mongolia or Catholic Kenya, but we're able to invest there and participate in the work there by our financial giving. It's an incredible privilege when you think about it. God lets us actually participate in works around the world like that. And then finally, practice the four P's of giving. This is just a little practical suggestion uh, for, for giving. I think giving should be planned and prayerful. Like Paul told the Corinthians. He's writing to them so they can plan for this giving. He doesn't want them to give under compulsion. I think it's best when our giving is planned and prayerful. If you're married, you talk about it with your spouse, you pray over it, and that it's prioritized. Because we all know in life that it's what's prioritized that gets done. We shouldn't offer to God our leftovers, but our first fruits. And then percentage. And again, I, I do not believe in being legalistic about a percentage of giving, but I do think it's true that Christians who give most are percentage givers. They're disciplined in their giving, and it may be tithing. I know some Christians who who've, have tithed on business income. They have percentages other than 10%, some that's higher than that. But however God deals with you, I think our discipline in giving um, is, is enhanced by prayerful, planned, prioritized percentage giving. Now, before we leave this subject, I want to just share with you a, a prayer. And if it helps you to, to use a prayer like this, um, you'll find it on our church website under the resource tab. As you look at those spiritual growth resources, this will be the first prayer that, that comes up. And it's just formed from some of the scriptures on giving um, in the New Testament. And it reads, Lord, you've told us that everything we have is a gift from you. Please help me to see everything I have, including money, as a trust from you. Give me the wisdom to be a faithful steward so I can hear you say, well done. Please give me a clearer eternal perspective so I can use my time and money for the greatest possible benefit. Keep me from greed, excessive spending, and worry about the future. Help me to trust you as my provider and sustainer. Teach me how to give with joy and generosity. Thank you for your inexpressible gift, which is the gift of Jesus. Now let's pray together as we close, shall we? Father, Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your inexpressible gift. Lord, as you know, I'm always a little sensitive with this topic because I don't want people who are not Christians to be turned away from you. And yet at the same time, it's such a clear topic of teaching in your word. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us here 
to hear you speaking to us as we need to hear from you. And I pray for any here who don't really know you yet as Savior and Lord, that you would reveal to them today that it's not their giving you seek, but their reception of your inexpressible gift. Would you place on their hearts the understanding that your generosity was shown in sending your only begotten Son, Jesus, who bore the judgment for our sins, that we might know you in an eternal relationship of acceptance as your adopted children. May you be honored here this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.